What is going on? Welcome to the Land Podcast. This week we have a short conversation with Gordon Winnington. And the reason it's short is because the full-length episode is going to go on the Exodus Podcast part of our little mini-series called Whitetail Pioneers. Gordon has seen the entire space of whitetails change from when he was started hunting in Texas growing up in the 1960s to, to where we are today in 2024. He was the editor-in-chief for over 36 years for North American Whitetail, broke a lot of big stories that is ultimately Whitetail history here today, but at the time he was just living in it. But I asked him, what do you think the next 30 years of, of Whitetail hunting looks like? And it directly pertained to what we talk about here on the Land Podcast. If you really want to hunt Whitetails, this is what he says you're going to need to do within the next 30 years. And I think this movement has already started, but in his opinion, it's only going to accelerate. So I hope you guys enjoy this. Be sure to check out the full length episode with Gordon. We talk about some of his favorite stories from over the years and just a really great conversation and enjoyed it. So I also have some conversations here scheduled for the land podcast that I am extremely excited about some topics I've been wanting to dive in for a very long time. And those are going to be coming down the pipeline very soon. So just want to give you a quick disclaimer. We have some really great conversations coming down the pipeline here at the Land Podcast. And as always, if you're brand new here to the show, goal here is very simple. It's help 100 people buy their first piece of land. There's three ways to be on that list. Number one, if you're in the state of Illinois and looking in an area of my expertise, I'm more than happy to help as a buyer's agent. Number two, if you want to get connected with someone I would consider doing business with, I'm happy to make an introduction. You make your own decision and maybe interview a couple other agents that may be a good fit for you. And number three, if you just simply learn something here from the podcast that helps you move forward with action, I want to hear it. I want to add you to the list. Let's get right into this week's episode. Here we go. Was there any bold predictions that you thought in your head, whether you voiced them or not, in let's say the early 90s or mid 90s to what the whitetail sport would look like 30 years later? And, and I guess kind of what I'm thinking here is I would have to imagine if you said in the 80s or the 90s, like, hey, people are going to go buy ground and plant food plots and do everything all to shoot whitetails. I have to imagine that was probably somewhat of a foreign thought or idea at that time. And now that's that's just part of the sport now or part of, part of the culture today. Exactly. And and at the time we were starting to do a few management articles and even in the early days of North American Whitetail, Dr. Kroll in particular was writing those. Um, and we started doing some research there in Georgia on one of the owner's properties where we were trying to figure out what it takes to grow big deer. Uh, but and we knew some of that was going to be revolutionary, but we did know how much it would catch on because you never know how the world's going to change in terms of uh, there weren't even that many hunting clubs in parts of the country at that time. See, I grew up, there were already deer leases in Texas when I was born in the 50s. Uh, most parts of the country, some of them have still never really seen many deer leases, but most parts of the country now, if you want quality access to private land, you're going to pay for it. But that was always normal to me because it was always that way where I, where I was. Uh, but most people here in the South or in places like the Midwest, certainly in the Northeast, uh, kind of a foreign concept to even try to control your, your fate as a deer hunter. You just kind of went hunting, right? So, so there was no way to know at that time how many people would pick up on this idea of not just managing, but also acquiring total control of the property so you could manage exactly the way you wanted to. There was no way of really knowing that at the time because it was just a new thing. 
so I am surprised that it's become as pervasive as it has been, but uh, and it's just the, the way the world has changed. Look at how many people that have lived most of their life in more, quote, civilized areas suddenly want to go buy that cabin out, you know, out of the country or, uh, you know, go in with a buddy and buy a farm or do something. Uh, that's, you know, the world has gotten smaller and it's been chopped up a lot more. And so now you don't have to be a cattle rancher to own a ranch. I mean, you could be a guy with made your money somewhere else and went and bought a place that has some cows on it, but that doesn't make you a rancher. That makes you a guy with some cows on your recreational property, which you probably bought for deer and turkey hunting. And so, and, and maybe a place that you want to make sure your kids have a place uh, 20, 30 years from now. So, so there's all kind of motivations for buying land besides trying to kill a big deer, but, but the whitetail clearly has driven uh, that whole market, you know, for the last, I would say at least the last 20 years. Do you have any bold predictions for what whitetail hunting will look like 30 years from today? You know, I'll be pushing 100 at that point. So I guess I, <laughs> I, I, I certainly don't anticipate being around to, to know if I got it right. Um, access is going to continue to get harder. I think we could all agree on that. We look at the number of people now that already feel like they've been pushed out of quality hunting on private land because they either don't have the resources or the connections or whatever to, to actually tap into that. It's only going to get harder as the properties on average become smaller. You know, property, properties are not getting bigger, they're getting smaller. So um, I would say that the quality of deer available I can't see that that's going to reverse and, and go back to, hey, everybody's shooting spikes. That's, that's not going to happen. I've never seen anybody that got into big deer that lost the at interest. If they lost interest, they just quit hunting. Uh, they didn't say, I'm going to start shooting smaller and smaller deer. Uh, that just That's not how the mind works, right? So I don't see that the public's going to become less uh, selective in what they shoot. I do think that as it gets harder to access where deer live, that we're going to have a lot more big road kills. We're going to have, you know, we're going to have a lot more problems with sharpshooters in these communities. Um, the community says, oh, we're not going to allow hunting. We're just going to bring in sharpshooters and we're going to do it, you know, that going to call deer that way. I do think it's going to get to be harder for the average guy to find a place that's not you know, really been hunted much. Um, it's already hard. I mean, it's hard to do that now. I think it's only going to get harder. Uh, I also am curious, though, to see what the non-hunting public's attitude toward hunting is, because if they decide that, hey, we don't hunt, but we're not going to let anybody hunt either because we don't like it, uh, then at that point, the access question gets even tougher. So as long as the non-hunting public will say, you know, I don't want to shoot the deer, but I don't mind you shooting it. Take care of my land, you know, shut the gate, do all the usual things, help me do chores, all the kind of stuff that, you know, endears the hunter to the landowner. Um, if the public will, con the non-hunting public will continue to support hunting, whether they participate in it or not, then it won't be so bad. We'll still have a lot of people able to find good places to hunt, uh, whether they're paying or not. I mean, but but if the non-hunting public decides that hunting is truly evil, uh, and you, I don't hunt, deer eat my rose bushes or whatever else, but I don't care because the alternative is to let you kill them. I'm not going to let you kill them. 
There's not much you can do about that when you don't own the land. So I would say if somebody wants to be sure they're going to have some quality hunting, not just for themselves, but for their kids and grandkids, uh, the best you could do today would be to try to get some kind of piece of land under your control. And that's pretty much going to mean owning it. Because otherwise, if it's a timber timber property or Fred's farm that you hunt, you know, for a smoked turkey every Thanksgiving or whatever, whatever your arrangement is with Fred, you're not Fred. Your name's not on the deed. So at some point that will change. Uh, if your name's not on the deed, you can't do anything about that. I mean, you, you can wish, but you can't really force it to be your way. So when that's the case and it becomes more and more a problem in more places, then the the hunter is going to get squeezed out. But so he's almost got to protect himself today, he or she, by trying to at least carve out a few acres somewhere, somehow. Uh, if it's the best place in the county, the best place in the state, uh, probably not. But is it a place to hunt? Yeah, you can still go hunt your way uh, within the framework of the law. Be safe, honest, respectable, you know, good good average hunter, uh, you can still enjoy what we've always enjoyed for a long time now. Mm -hmm. it, with, with all that being said, and a little bit of a sidebar, but do you think that the average whitetail hunter is much more knowledgeable and more efficient as a deer hunter than 20 years ago with all the information that's available now? Probably no more uh, wood skill and what we used to call woodsmanship, you know, back because even when I was a kid, the old timers would say, ah, people today, they don't know anything about deer. They don't know anything about the land. They just kind of go out there and sit in a box or whatever and just shoot a deer. You know, they don't really, you know, it's not, uh, you know, slipping around the back country, you know, in moccasins with a spear, you know, trying to sneak up on a deer. I mean, this is, even when I was a kid, we were a long way from that, right? But I will say that when the trail camera came along, the total everything about the game changed and particularly trail cameras and baiting together. Um, those two things together, uh, we could throw in crossbows, we could throw in range finders, we could throw in the compound bow. Of course we could on and on. I mean, all the things that made a difference cumulatively, all those things have made us more efficient. Mm. Have, have they made us better? Um, I, I see that. Yeah. There's way more information available today. I mean, what, what I could learn if I'd never heard of a white-tailed deer, uh, and, I, and you said, okay, your homework assignment is to learn about deer hunting. In 30 minutes on the internet or on YouTube, I could learn more about deer hunting than I could learn in five years when I was a kid, okay? Because all this information exists, it didn't even exist. There weren't any sanctuaries, uh, staging areas, signposts. All those things came along. Those terms, anyway, came along since we started North American Whitetail. And so, if you came along before then, it's like even that was a revelation. Well, now today you say my four-year-old can tell you what a signpost rub is. Okay, he couldn't when I was a kid. And there was no such there was no such term. So I will say today that just almost by osmosis of scrolling through Facebook or, or Instagram or or flipping on the outdoor channel or watching an hour of YouTube, you can find out all this stuff now. I mean, it doesn't mean you're out doing it yet, but it does mean that you're absorbing what it is and what how it all ties together. You still have to go apply it in the woods. And that's the part 
that you can't fake. Okay, you can't you can't fake becoming a good stalker. You can't read about it and immediately be a good stalker. You have to go out there and bust a bunch of deer, figure out what you did wrong, and learn from it. So there's still a learning curve in the field, but in terms of the information you can acquire prior to going into the field or along the way, it's been a quantum leap in in almost every aspect. Yeah, that's I, I see the distinction there on what you talk about, like definitely more efficient, but uh, maybe actually in the woods, I think is. And, and that's the funny too, is it's like the same argument, like the more things change, the more things stay the same of just like generation to generation, the same pipes uh, continue to uh, transfer down. What do you, so as a, you know, the whitetail historian, and what do you think, what five year period do you think was the golden age of whitetail deer hunting? Well, it's it's hard to say that we're not still in it in terms of um, availability of uh, of quality animals. Okay, I mean I'd say we we probably are still in it, but if you want to look at when it seemed like the public uh, enthusiasm, uh, the number of big deer, the record harvest state by state by state, I mean that was probably to me is probably in the two thousands. Uh, maybe early 2000s, uh, could have even been back into the 90s. But clearly when we came along and started having uh, CWD to me is not a very big problem. It's just kind of a made up political thing more than anything else. But um, it's, it's a money generator for the, for the DNRs, frankly. But, but EHD uh, is a serious problem. We didn't have much of that 25 years ago. Okay, so once we started getting into these cyclical die-offs, if you will, from EHD and um, bovine TB, let's say in Michigan and places like that, we had some isolated regional disease issues, but but overall EHD is overwhelmingly the biggest the biggest problem we face today, along with much higher predation than we used to have. So I would say that some of those things are now working against us, but if we went back 10, 15, 20 years, uh, all those aspects, I think, were a little bit more under control, and and that probably is closer to the golden era, if I had to pinpoint it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, what do you think was the golden age of North American whitetail? We were just talking, as far as like magazine publications, before we got into the digital age, and we were talking before. I said, you know, however many uh, volumes and editions you've been involved with the North American whitetail. We were talking uh, way back, and I think it was two thousand one. Uh, my, of all people, my dad actually submitted a story of a buck, uh, and it was a close family friend that shot a, a giant deer that had hot wire wrapped around all of the antlers, and mm-hmm. and you you knew exactly what, a, what that exact condition, and and tell me a little bit about that because I think people would find that interesting. Well, you know the the golden era, if you will, back when before anybody was getting information, um, even much on TV. I mean, obviously. When, when Realtree and Mossy Oak and Buckmasters and different people came along and started doing a lot more uh, uh, hunting TV, uh, and we came along in 2004 with our first episode of it, um, before that point, most things, you know, of any depth at all were either in magazines or in some cases even in books, okay? So, so that period, you know, the, the exponential growth of North American whitetail probably started with the first issue in the early 80s. And so all through the 80s, um, I mean, everybody was just every year, there were more people interested in big deer. I mean, 
part of that was because we had enough deer in enough places at that point that most people had shot a few. People tend to overlook the fact that you, you aren't necessarily going to just want to be a trophy hunter from day one. You may have an inherent interest in that, and you may find yourself gravitating more to the big deer on grandpa's wall than on the spikes. But that said, as a hunter, you still have to shoot a few before you start to raise your standards normally. Uh, not everybody's born on a farm in southern Iowa and, and, and seeing 150s when they're you know waiting for the school bus every morning, right? Okay, so so people in the 80s were starting to get their heads around the idea of I not only uh, appreciate these big deer, but I want to shoot them. And if I I'm, and they're bigger than the ones I've been shooting. So so I think the the resource was growing, uh, the interest was growing, everything was com compounding itself in through the 80s and and even into the 90s. And then the Hanson buck and deer like that uh, made everybody just more more focused on the really big deer. Um, but I would say at some point there. Uh, digital in a sense, whether it was whether it was outdoor TV and certainly whether it was websites, YouTube, whatever else, as that came along and started to uh, I won't say fracture the interest, it spread out the interest. It didn't decrease the interest in the magazine. It just added other ways in which to reach hunters. And so that that's made it a little bit less efficient from a content creation standpoint. Now you have to be on multiple platforms to reach the same number of people you did before. But in reality, now North America Whitetail's website, uh, these breaking news buck stories that are on there all the time, every week, the, cumulatively, they reach more people than the magazine does, and that is growing rapidly. So we see that the interest is still there. It's just taking a different form. Yeah. And so do you think that, okay, that, that makes sense. And then what uh, about the Weird white Whitetail's article or uh, edition? What, what was the idea behind that? And then... It was kind of, I don't want to say eerie, eerie timing uh, with, with the world of like, uh, where were you when Pearl Harbor happened and then so on, like with all these different things. So what was the scoop behind that addition and, and timing? Well, we had the idea that there were certain types of stories that <clears throat> were not necessarily about giant deer. Uh, North American Whitetail from day one, it always put itself out as the magazine devoted to the serious trophy deer hunter. That was on our title. Uh, cover for a long time uh, and we always felt like that's what we were but we also heard about these other things that were interesting deer with fangs uh, you know three deer locked together uh, deer with again like say wire wrapped around their antlers crazy stuff that people had not seen you see it all the time now because we're all on social media and we see it everywhere but back then 20 something years ago nobody hardly had seen that and nobody had seen it all compiled into one under one title like we wanted to do with weird whitetails. So when we put that together, you know, you never know when you put out something new, how it's going to take. You just, you can kind of go by a hunch more than anything else and say, if people are interested in what we've been doing, I think this is related to it closely enough, but also unique enough that it will, that it will, uh, find finds find a real marketplace and so but not enough that we're going to put out a whole magazine every month called weird whitetails there's not enough of that stuff but there is enough to once in a while gather it under one title and say here here here's something we call weird whitetails 
and we hope it's of interest to you. And it turned out that it was extremely successful, even even in the wake of 9/11, which is when it came out. It it uh, to this day remains our our biggest selling special issue, which I think says something just about the nature of the of the, of the topics we covered. Yeah, no, that's that's really fascinating. Well, um, anything else you want to share here today, Gordon? I really I really appreciate uh, just just hearing your perspective of over the years. I mean, you were in the trenches more than anyone uh, throughout this period. And I greatly appreciate you, you, you recounting some of those experiences and your opinions and thoughts. And um, I truly appreciate it. And I, I think every diehard deer hunter has probably had this thought cross their mind as, man, can you imagine if I made the cover of North American White I mean, it's like the sports, like you're an athlete and you want to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Like, could you just imagine? And I think that says a lot about uh, the legacy that that you have created and, and being such a integral part of all of that. Well, to be honest with you, Jake, I I always considered myself uh, a caretaker. I mean, I didn't come up with the idea. Um, I'm certainly not the best deer hunter in the world. I've hunted more places than most people have, but I've also had more opportunity. Uh, that does not make me a better hunter. Uh, if I've shot more nice deer than somebody else has, that doesn't make me a better hunter either. It means that I've had more opportunity. Uh, there are many people and many thousands of people reading North America Whitetail that I'm positive were better deer hunters than I am. Uh, you, have you ever heard their names? No, They're just regular people that have a passion for whitetails and, and, are, and are good at it, okay? But they're just regular guys. I think that's to me, the most satisfying thing about it is that we didn't put out a magazine for the elite. I mean, the elite deer are covered in this magazine for regular people, okay? So the deer have always been the star. Uh, they've always been the center. It's never been, honestly, about any of us. I mean, even on TV where you kind of have to have a little bit of a bigger-than-life persona, um, I can assure you, Stan Potts a great friend of mine. Stan's shot a ton of big deer, but Stan wouldn't put himself out as the best hunter either. He He's hunted some great places. He's a really good hunter. Dr. Kroll's a really good hunter. We've hunted together a lot, but none of them would say that they're the star. The star is the animal, okay? And what's special about all this and what ties it all together is this appreciation and fascination, if you will, and love for this one kind of animal that is at, at, the, at one time it's so common that, you know, people everywhere recognize it. Oh, they're eating in my garden. No, oh, there's a deer in my garden. Okay, yeah, you're not going to say that about muskox, okay? That's not happening. A uh, mountain goat or, or an eland or some, something, something exotic. Uh, it's a super common animal, but at the same time, it is super hard to kill on your terms uh, in a predictable fashion, okay? And particularly when you're focused on one individual animal in a whole group of deer. You say, that's the deer I'm going after. Um, what we do teaches us that we're not as good as the deer. You know, but as my old friend uh, Gene Wenzel actually said one time, he said, you know, we can be, we can be wrong 99% of the season and still win. The deer can't be wrong 1% and live, you know, and, and that, that does drive it home. They have, they, they adhere to a different standard of survival than we do. You know, we don't kill a deer. We just go to the store and buy a hamburger. Um, 
But if they don't figure out all the hunters in an area, they end up being the hamburger. And that puts a different spin on what we do and how much I appreciate uh, what the deer puts up with day after day. We're sitting here inside today and somewhere it's out there, it's blowing a gale and it's raining hard or it's mud or something else. And the deer are living with that. You know, we're not living with it, but the deer are. Okay, so I have total appreciation for that animal. And were it not for that animal, North American whitetail wouldn't even ever have existed. So a tip of the old cap to uh, the mighty whitetail. What, what we chase because it is a, it is not your normal run-of-the-mill animal. It is a special breed. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with any of that more. And I've thought of that uh, some of those thoughts too, where it's uh, it's whipping crazy wind right now and step outside for a second it's cold it's like man those things they're out there 24 7 and they have to be right every single day and we only have to be right once i mean that's just the reality of it it's almost exactly. feels a little unfair at times but uh but, <laughs> but they'll humble you more times than not too so well uh gordon if someone wanted to follow along with what you have going on today i know you're retired and and you're still um, doing some things but um anything you want to share where people can track you down if you, if you want that well, I'm I'm on Facebook a lot. I have a I have my regular page, which, but then I added a second page years and years ago. I had more friend requests than I could add because Facebook would only let you have five thousand. So I said, well, I've got to have some other page. So I, I made a quote fan page. Now that's kind of a joke because I, I don't consider myself that need any fans. But I made a fan page just so people could keep up with more of the deer stuff that I do. So Gordon Whittington fan page is, is a pretty, pretty boring title, but that's really on Facebook uh, where I would invite people to go and follow there. Uh, as far as the magazine or anything like that, NorthAmericanWhitetail.com uh, obviously has a lot of my articles on it. Um, and, and that's probably a good place to do that. I'm on Instagram too, but I don't do very much there. I don't tweet. I don't uh, do some of the things. I don't have a YouTube channel personally, but but North American Whitetail has all these things. And so I would certainly direct someone to go there if they're interested in more. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time here today and uh, all the work over the years. And I think that, um, you know, we'll, we'll all have these Whitetail history stories uh, cemented for us. Uh, thanks to a lot of the work that you've done. Well, I'm, I'm glad that we've been able to enlighten people somewhat and, and frankly, just entertain them. I, I have had people say in the past, they say, well, you know, do you want to have a career where you feel like you did something important? And I think everybody would like to be able to say that. Most of us have mundane jobs and don't really feel like we're changing the world. But, but I've said years ago, I said, look, if all North American Whitetail does is uh, if it doesn't help you shoot the state record or become a TV personality or whatever else, but if all it does is for a few hours a month, you come in from a real job and sit down in your easy chair and flip through that magazine and take your mind off your problems and fantasize a little bit about the deer woods and, and, and look forward to the next deer season and all that. If that's all we've ever accomplished, that's not the worst thing you can say you did with your career. And so I'm, I'm proud of that. I kind of feel like we've, we've hopefully been able to do that and, uh, and expand people's horizons a little bit. And if, and if that's the case, then we've certainly been successful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad to have done it, Jake. And um, anytime, guys, uh, I know you're out there hunting sheds right now. So uh, good luck with that. And hope you don't find too many deadheads because that's always a little bit depressing. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, thank you so much, Gordon. All right, take care.